This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. You join us in the Soho editing suite of our sponsors Unbound, the website which brings authors and readers together to create something memorable. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And because we're all on our holidays in Wales or the British Library, or but doing anything except sunning ourselves on a beach in Ibiza, uh, we've got a slightly different show from the usual format. It might be difficult to imagine, but when we record a normal edition of Backlisted, uh, we tend to overrun, and uh, we tend to uh, occasionally digress. Which means, obviously, that we've got lots of uh, juicy, funny stories, which, for reasons of space or timing or the poor taste of our editor, fall on the cutting room floor. (laughs) Yes. However, as we're in a holiday mood, this is basically like the Simpsons clip show. (laughs) It's like trying to, you know, do you remember John that time we talked about that book? Do you remember that? (laughs) We thought we'd stitch some of those outtakes together and we'd give you the chance to hear some of the things that didn't make the cut first time around. And so we've got some of our guests, including Kit Duvall and Rupert Thompson and Catherine Taylor. And of course, me. And John. So, um, so enjoy. Without further ado. <laughs> Kit Duvall came onto the show to talk about William Maxwell's So Long See You Tomorrow. She also spoke about the work she does in prisons, helping inmates engage with books. And also, before we get on to Maxwell, there's one sure. other thing I'd really, really like to get on the record on this podcast, which is I found totally fascinating. When we were doing the, the panel about what makes a classic, you were talking about your work with in prisons, yes. with getting prisoners yes. to read and engage with books. Could you just say what the, what the books or the book is that is most likely to engage uh, a prisoner in a British jail? I found this fascinating. Confederacy of Dunces. No. It is absolutely. Oh if you meet um, a long-term prisoner, I have to say, uh, and they can read, and of course that, that is a segment of the population, that's their book. I mean, you know, you can talk to prisoners, if they're readers, they'll... Well, you won't get it out of the library because it's just gone. They'll talk about that book over and, and over. And the thing is, right, why I was so surprised and impressed about that is I found that quite a challenging read. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you can't underestimate or patronise anybody, can you? You've got to... I also you know. think it's to do with the story about the book, about the writer, because right. he was, you know, he died young. He's a loser. He was... He's a Poor loser. old John Kennedy he's, too. Yeah, yeah. He's, he wasn't discovered. He had this you know, difficult life and then there's this great book and it's got that sort of quirky, can't swear, but you know, yeah. that attitude, there's attitude in the book. And it's a big book. And if you're doing a long time in prison, you, do, you don't read the, the thin books. You want the <laughs> chunky read. You're doing your time and, and you yeah, can get yeah. through So Long See You Tomorrow before light out. So you yeah. don't want that. Yeah. You want the chunky yeah. book that'll last you a while. <laughs> The thing that I love about that, I, I, I've, I say this in Year of Reading Dangerously, is actually that many of the people, it, I find this hilarious when you said it, because I can add a category, right? Many of the people who love a Confederacy of Dunces are 
to prisoners, we can add writers. Yes. Because yeah. there's something <laughs> about the 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 Ignatius J. Riley character, his belief that the rest of the world are idiots, yeah. yes. that has who have failed to recognise his, his genius. Yeah. Absolutely. Which is itself, but he's also like. Um, John Kennedy till burlesquing his own frustration yeah, about it, not being able to get it, published, right? It, totally. So everyone in it is like exhilaratingly angry in that <laughs> book, right? You know what I mean? Yeah, Which I can imagine really transfers both writers and Prison. incarcerated people. Absolutely. You know? I mean, um, yeah. But it's, it's, that, is, that is the best single literary fact I've heard in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and and just going to really cheer me up. I Because I love that novel. For, but I love the... <laughs> there is a theory about gout that it's all repressed rage, but that, but uh, that, there, that, that book is that book is a, is is kind of it is a sustained howl, isn't it, Absolutely. of the most brilliant kind, and it's also you know it's there's there's, there's no self pity in it, or if the, in a way the self pity is transformed into something completely completely different. It's it's the self pity is so absolute that it becomes something else. Yes. So we were talking about um, so that's a classic. Uh, Confederacy of Dunces, and we were talking about Maxwell, who we are going to talk about in a minute as a classic. How, Kit, how did you get to the classics? Because I, I was really struck by what you were talking about, that you uh, have read, like, a lot. some big old books, I right? Have. <laughs> I have. Um, I was brought up in House Without Books, um, well, with two classic publications, The Bible and the News of the World, and that was your, uh, that was your reading material. Mm. My mother was uh, an Irish Catholic turned Jehovah's Witness and my dad was a bus driver, so he just read the news of the world and my mother foisted the Bible on us. I've read the Bible cover to cover at least three times. Amazing. Um, I left school, left home when I was 15 and sex, drugs and rock and roll. Came to when I was about 21, (laughs) 22 and thought, not smoking anymore, not taking any drugs, not drinking, what can I do? I know, I'll read. So I went to, I got some recommendations from my boss at the time, um, who's a lawyer, and he's, I said, give me just give me 10 books, just any 10 books. And he, were, he was an army man, so he gave me The Siege of Krishnapur, Three Men in a Boat, The Riddle of the Sands. Oh, We've done Riddle of the Sands on this podcast. He just Hilarious. gave me these 10 books, but uh, in there, and I love those books, I mean, yeah, no, yeah. no problem at all reading them, but in there was Madame Bovary. Wow. And in there was Therese Racan and mm. lots of others. Amazing. And I was off. So I read those 10 and I went back and back and back to Dylan's as it was then mm-hmm. and just bought the black penguin spines, just next black spine, next black spine, yep. until I, I felt I'd done that a couple of hundred books later probably. That's then so brilliant. I moved, I discovered vintage, the pale blue green, Modern classics. Modern classics. Penguin, probably Penguin. Pe- yeah, Penguin modern yeah. classics. 20th century classics That's or right. modern classics. Yeah, so yeah. then it was Graham Greene. <coughs> oh, my God, I was in heaven. Arnold Bennett, um, Patrick Hamilton, and I just devoured <laughs> oh. those books. Yeah. And so by 97, because that was, if I, was, if I started when I was 21, that was 1981. So by 97, I think I'd done quite a lot of reading. And I came uh, across... The Americans. I didn't get to the Americans because I was reading the, the French and the English. And then it was Henry James and blah, blah, blah. And I came across William Maxwell. And I am amazed. I didn't know it was published in 1980. I would have said yeah. from the reading of it, because I never opened the front. I just literally yeah. just went in cold. Um, I would have said it was a 1940s, yeah. 50s book. Yeah. And it had that feel of it. And I was amazed because when you asked me a forgotten classic, 
I wouldn't even say a book written in 1980, you know, qualified because it's just not yeah, old yeah. enough, which is why I said that. And it's a mystery to me that um, I thought it was... Well, it's not I, a just, I understand. I, think, I just I want to commend you on the phrase Henry James and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> because... I didn't like it. I didn't like well, Henry James at all. You know, can I ask you... If you Chewy, do, I think we'd have to say. <laughs> have you carried on reading geographically? So have you gone through kind of like Russian authors? And then I did some Russia and Poland. Um, I didn't do much of Scandinavian countries. And... Italy passed me by. I didn't do Italy. <laughs> I don't know why. Nor much of Spain. And um, haven't done a lot of South America. I've done bits, obviously, but I couldn't say, uh, like, France the really got tour. me. Yeah. <laughs> it's absolutely brilliant. But also, I just thinking Alan Lane, you know, that was that yeah, sense of a, absolutely. Of, of, a, of a kind of a whole education that, that was accessible to, totally. everybody, to everybody. That whole. He accomplished that for me. Uh, well, you know, and I think he did for, for millions of people as well. I, there was a wonderful thing I learned this week that in the week that it was published, the Evie Ruhr uh, translation of the Odyssey was outselling. It was number one bestseller in the paperback. It was outselling everything else. It's just that there was that wow. fantastic moment. I think it was, in, it was a review of Pevsner that was saying there was this sort of post-war moment when actually the, the, the excitement that people could educate themselves and that, and that yes. classics were, were there and that there was, it's, it's, such, it's such a great story. Over the last two years, we've had some rather strange memes that keep popping up and off-the-cuff remarks that strike a chord with members of the backlisted family. Can I call you that? Well, I think I can. Anyway, one of these recurring themes, possibly because of the show we did on All the Devils Are Here by David Seabrook, is slightly dilapidated English seaside towns. Here's Andy explaining more. Well, before I tell you what I've been reading this week, I need to update you on an important matter pertaining to our last podcast, ah. our Patrick Hamilton extravaganza, ultimate backlisted TM. With an additional pod for those With of you. Yeah. <laughs> so good, we had to record more than we... Available right now. So you might recall at the beginning of the last uh, episode, I uh, uh, related a true story about seeing the actor Peter O'Toole uh -huh. launching his autobiography <laughs> at a, an event at the Grand Hotel in Eastbourne 20 years ago where he was asked, um, uh, how do you write your books? And he replied, I use a pen and a piece of bloody paper. <laughs> that was the end of the Q&A. Well, I, somebody, had, somebody listened, was listening to that, and I had a, a, a message this week from Jonathan Main, uh, oh, uh, who runs so. the brilliant uh, independent bookshop in South London, bookseller Crow. Um, and he, he sent me this message, which I'm going to read out verbatim because it really made me laugh. He said, just listen to Hamilton podcast. I too was at the O'Toole breakfast in Eastbourne and can confirm your story. <laughs> he was smoking using a long cigarette holder and he was wearing a cape. <laughs> My friend Stephen and I were staying at an old hotel on Eastbourne seafront. It had a rickety old lift with the old iron concertina gates that ran down the middle of it. The night before the breakfast, we had been out late and returning to the hotel, found the doors locked. It took us some time to raise the night porter who appeared at the door in a panic, opened it and ran back towards the lift, shouting, she's gone, she's gone. <laughs> Whereupon, much to our pissed bemusement, the lift creaked downwards, the gates pulled back and a recently deceased old woman was wheeled out on a gurney. <laughs> 
just thought you might appreciate, Jay. So thank you, Jonathan, <laughs> for both confirming my story and um, one up. That it. must have been a Booksellers Association conference, must it? Was it was, yeah, 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 it was yeah, the yeah. BA conference. I think I was, at, I, I was at that conference as well, but sadly not at the Petro Tool launch. Great idea for a book launch outfit for me, actually. I'm just thinking a cape, a cape? and a long cigarette, cigarette holder. holder. It's never amazing. a bad look, surely. <laughs> The critic and writer Catherine Taylor chose Vladimir Nabokov's, or Nabokov's, The Gift to talk about when she came on Backlisted a few months ago. There was so much in the book that we didn't manage to get on to the rich topic of the various letters Nabokov sent to agents, acquaintances and the like. Here's some of the stuff we had to leave out. We must also stress Nabokov's humour. Mm. The humour in the book and the humour in everything Nabokov did is very, very present. And um, Proper wit. I've got a letter here that he wrote to his New York agent, Alta Gracia de Gianelli, in 1938, and she was attempting to place translation rights in Dar, the gift. And Dmitry Nabokov describes her as the most energetic of a platoon of agents who homed in on VN after laughter in the dark. And this is in response, Nabokov wrote this letter to a, in response to a reader's report which the reader's report has been lost, but we have the letter. Okay, we have the letter. Here we go. It's a Nabokov novel. Dear Mr. Janelli, I am writing from a small mountain resort. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's pure, pure kinboat right there. Anyway, I am writing from a small mountain resort. On the whole, I rather liked N's description of the gift, although it is very superficial. There is a lot more in my book, both for the connoisseur and the lay reader. Here are some objections. The gift is thoroughly realistic, as it tells the story of a definite person showing his physical existence and the development of his inner self. As he is an author, I naturally show his literary progress. Moreover, the whole story is threaded on my hero's love romance, with the underground work of fate revealed, an essential point which N has entirely missed. My style and methods have nothing italics in common with Joyce, though I greatly appreciate Ulysses. The novel is not, quotes, a crazy quilt of bits. (laughs) It is a logical sequence of psychological events. The movements of stars may seem crazy to the simpleton, but wise men know that comets come back. I don't understand why your reader should be, quotes, astonished at the, quotes, insertion of my hero's work's biography. The preceding chapters lead up to it, and as samples are given of all my hero's literary production, it would have been an impossible omission to leave his chief book out. Moreover, at this point, my hero's interpretation of Chernyshevsky's life, which incidentally took me four years to write... (laughs) lifts my novel to a wider plane, lending it an epic note and, so to say, spreading my hero's individual butter over the bread of a whole epoch. Oh, I... In this work, Chernyshevsky's life, the defeat of Marxism and materialism is not only made evident, but it is rounded out by my hero's artistic triumph. As to the interest which the gift might represent to the foreign American reader... I want to repeat that I know how to translate the book in such a way as to even avoid the necessity of footnotes. Human interest means Uncle Tom's cabin to me or Goldsworthy's drivel and makes me sick, (laughs) seasick. Your faith in my work is of the greatest value to me and I thank you warmly for your kind words. Yours very truly, Vladimir Nabokov. Isn't that wonderful? I love him. Um, 
a lot, there's another interview just in case we got time of him about the, the modern world, which you know, it's just he don't use phrases like modern world to, to, to Nabokov, he'll skewer you. So, but he comes, I love this. What I feel to be the real modern world is the world the artist creates, his own mirage, which becomes a new mere world in Russian by the very act of his shedding, as it were, the age he lives in. My mirage is produced in my private desert, an arid but ardent place with the sign no caravans allowed on the trunk of a lone pine palm. Arid or ardent? <laughs> oh, yes, very good. Very I know, good. no caravans <laughs> Sorry, it's just too good. We could go. So much more we could have. We've got so much more. We haven't got onto Poshlost at, uh, at all, which is uh, huge and important. I did mention huge and important. What do you want to say? What it is? Go on. You got one. You got one line. Go, go. on. <laughs> a fundamental concept in in Nabokov, isn't it? The, the thing the, that he kind of writes, as it were, against. Well, it's Poshlost, but he he refers to it as Poshlust because he was a great punner, and it's yeah. about the phony and the vulgar and. And it's deeply kind of, uh, it's a very Russian concept. It's one of those fairly untranslatable yeah. Russian words which are now, we're now actually trying to translate yeah. <laughs> for the sake of this programme. Um, but he accuses, well, certain writers of actually, Gogol yeah. in particular, I yeah. think, of I mean, falling victim to a certain banality of writing. It's, it's the sort of, it's kind of critical banality as well. It, it, all of those kind of, you know, People who call things extraordinary and remarkable on podcasts—that that kind of that, awesome. Or, um, that it, his whole life was lived against the, the, the reductive, wanting to be able to reduce things. He, he was about making things more complex and, and patterns. And he talks. He did with, not suffer the lazy reader. He did not suffer the lazy reader, <laughs> as we have said on and, this podcast several times. But I love the idea that he was looking. You know how you tell a, a, a butterfly, a new species of butterflies, to examine in, 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 in a microscope with a microscope its genitalia, and that's what he was. And he, the, 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 you were talking about the amazing uh, Nabokov's butterflies book, the, right. the, the, the sketches, and all his novels were written in pencils. Mm. Um, and on, they also on, on used index um, cards, index cards yeah. and in fact, Fyodor in the book, obviously, yeah. he uses index cards to write his book too. So this is the bit that I put in the Eurovision dangerously from uh, lectures on Russian literature. I may, if I am lucky, tap the deep pathos that pertains to all authentic art, because of the breach between its eternal values and the sufferings of a muddled world. This world, indeed, can hardly be blamed for regarding literature as a luxury or a toy unless it can be used as an up-to-date guidebook. As is usual on Backlisted, we're going to pause now for a moment to let an author from the Unbound Stable tell you about their latest book. In this episode, it's Martin Fitzgerald, the author of Ruth and Martin's Album Club. My name is Martin Fitzgerald and I am the author of a book called Ruth and Martin's Album Club. And Ruth and Martin's Album Club is a book, formerly a blog, where we would make famous-ish people listen to albums that they'd never heard before. We started the project, I guess, with just some friends of mine and some journalists. And within sort of 18 months, it became relatively popular to the point where something that started out as a as a hobby for me, um, and it gets a little bit of a time suck in, in sort of evenings and weekends, ended up with us making 
you know, J.K. Rowling listened to the first Violent Femmes album. We also had politicians. We had Tim Farron listening to NWA. We had a guy from the House of Lords listening to Public Enemy. And we were interested. It was a kind of antidote to a thousand and one albums you must listen to before you die. I've never really understood that sentiment. Ruth is a real person. I saw her about an hour ago, actually, and she's fine. There were lots of people that really didn't like the albums that they ended up listening to. But it was all done in an overall spirit of that doesn't really matter. There's no right or wrong here. So what I would hope that people got from the book is, is that just sense of fun, that it, that it doesn't matter, because it doesn't. Every album that we did, I really liked. But I didn't mind when someone didn't like the album, as long as they made me enjoy them not liking it. So I want people to laugh at the book. I want people to be interested. A big part of the book is the stories of these artists. And what I've tried to do there is to not cover old ground and not do music journalism in inverted commas. I've tried to tell adventure stories because I think that all of these bands or singers, whether it's Elvis or Kendrick Lamar, if you tell them from the point of view of before those people made it, they are adventures and they're funny and strange things happen. And yes, you can talk about recording techniques and you can talk about the summer of love and you can talk about doing a complicated album on a four-track recorder or you can say Paul McCartney was 24 when he did Sgt Pepper that's kind of mad isn't it because that's now seen as vintage and progressive and classic but he was like a kid that's weird I tried to tell the stories with a sort of lightness and, and I think the guests had a sort of lightness to it too so I would want people to read it and yeah, maybe check out the albums if they, if they wanted to. That would be good. But mainly people just to read it and, and to smile and to realise that you can take music seriously by not being serious about music sometimes. Ruth and Martin's Album Club by Martin Fitzgerald is available to order now from all good bookshops or from the Unbound website, unbound.com. Backlisted listeners can get a discount by putting in the code BACKOFF, that's B-A-C-K-O-F-F, at checkout. We've talked about books enough. Now for some capitalism. After that short interlude, we continue to rummage amongst the offcuts from the past editions and we return once more, perhaps inevitably, to Eastbourne, where no doubt one day we shall all retire. It turns out that the novelist Rupert Thompson is a product of that town, as he explained when he came in to do the podcast. So I may have just like... So my mum lives in Bexhill. Yeah. And has lived in Bexhill for 27 years. She moved to Bexhill 27 years ago. Is the Curzon in Eastbourne, is that... It may not not still be there. Is that the cinema that's near the Arndale Centre? It's on Seaside, which is... No, it's it's sort of the east end of Eastbourne towards the... East end. Towards the crumbles. Yes, the yeah. crumbles indeed. It's down, yes. that, it's down that, that way. Is that the yeah. name for people who live in Eastbourne? <laughs> this, is, this is becoming a regular Eastbourne podcast, <laughs> yeah. you know. My, I told a story last time about sh- seeing sh- Peter O'Toole uh, in, Eastbourne. in Eastbourne at the Book shabby, Association Conference. Shabby English well, seaside there a, towns. There's a really famous... One of the famous things I used to hear growing up was that Roger Moore lived in Eastbourne. And, you know, because there's, that, there's one high-rise building in Eastbourne called... South Cliff Tower or something. And, and he apparently had the penthouse in that. 
I mean, does I that apparently you have no, <laughs> we have no, no way to verify? Let's no just idea. assume that that's true. It's a lovely idea. Yeah. Oh, that lovely thought. Pep up yeah. all visits to home. You can see I can feel all horrible psychogeography project kind of <laughs> emerging, <laughs> can't you? It's sort of a, a kind of benign uh, octogenarian version of uh, All the Devils Are Here set in Eastbourne. Well, it's not that nasty a place. People are mostly very nice here. Well, or to, a book called to... Mr Bond. Yeah. I assume, yeah. where you travel to towns where you've heard that, that Roger Moore might live <laughs> as a it's, way of exploring memory. What is it about films? It's just because that All the Devils Are Here, the David Seabrook book, which we did at one of our favourite mm. podcasts we've done last year, was, is all about. I mean, it was Charles Hawtrey plays a kind of sinister central role in that. Who lived and very much died and, in a deal. And then yeah. Whitstable, your own hometown, Peter Indeed. Cushing. Indeed. I mean... Peter Cushing lives in Whitstable. He go. What is it? He buys vegetables in a on a bicycle. Was a song. Was it? Yeah. Have you never heard? How, how's <laughs> that go? Peter Cushing lives in Whitstable. He buys vegetables on a bicycle. On his bicycle. It, honestly, if you've never heard, see it, really comes alive. I think it, it's called Peter Cushing lives on. We we used to have it on the QI website. I'll find it for you, listeners. Well. I somebody out this, there will already know. Already, this this episode is taking on unexpected new <laughs> new shapes and directions. <laughs> Back in the mists of time, Andy and myself both worked for our sins in the bookselling trade. When William Fines came in recently to talk about Paula Fox, the conversation got onto the kind of events that we used to attend back in the last century. I don't really go to these anymore, but in the ni- <laughs> in the 90s, I used to attend in my capacity as like a first a bookseller and then someone who works at Waterstone's head office and then a publisher uh, author dinners <laughs> do they still have author dinners well we do yeah I mean dinners where authors attend not not quite in the same way I yeah think. in the 90s what they used to do was they used to have, have they ever thrown one of these for you William no I think I missed the um, I, I mean I've be some some lunch uh, yeah. a few lunches around. Well, uh, what they um, used to do was, if an author had a had a book coming out, then the publisher would book a restaurant in the evening, and they'd invite booksellers, people and, and people from trade magazines and whatever from around London. And there'd be about fifteen of you. There'd be you, and uh, there'd be June from the Pan Bookshop, <laughs> <laughs> and there'd be somebody from Books Etc. and what have you. And there'd be this. This I now realise poor author, <laughs> and I used to work for a great man called Dane Howell, who was the manager of the shop that I, Kensington High Street, Waterstones. And if he was invited to one of these dinners, he would often send one of us in his stead if he couldn't go or didn't want to go. He was just one of the great booksellers of, of uh. all time. And so I, I, so I used to go to quite a few of these dinners. They weren't always great social events, was my, <laughs> was my memory. But partly that was the fault of. Us, you know, that was partly our fault. I remember I went to, I won't say who this was, but I went to one, I went to one author dinner for, for a, quite a famous author where I'd had a very long day at the shop and I'd been out the night before and they read extensively <laughs> from yeah. their new, I fell asleep at the table yeah. and, and, and I have the copy of the book that they signed to me and, and when I opened it, I, it, it said, you know, dear Andy, thank you for your close attention. Yeah. <laughs> it was so humiliating. Yeah. I mean, so humiliating. But I, but I know, I know it's terrible, isn't it? It's terrible. I keep it as a reminder, you know, that you should 
behave yourself properly. I once went to a dinner somewhere in Chelsea. I can't even remember where this was. It was for the publication of Sir Roy Strong's Diaries, and and it was uh, it's when I was a, it was when I was at Hedford, and so it was a dinner for about it was a, like a dozen people tops. And I really like Sir Roy Strong. He yeah. is a very uh, intelligent and entertaining... A brilliant amused, storyteller. brilliant storyteller. And he went round the table... He did a thing after dinner. He went round the table and he said to each person, and who are you and where do you, where do you work? And what, what have you got? He got to me and he said, um, and who do we have here? <laughs> this young gentleman who looks like a cross between Keats... And the young Mick Jagger. <laughs> <laughs> clearly, now clearly this was some time ago. <laughs> now that I look like, you know, Mick Jagger as he looks now and Keats as he looks now. <laughs> um, but, um, but that was really, really fun. That was really, really nice. That was for his diaries from the 60s to the, to the late 80s. I'm waiting for the publication of his diaries for the period in question to see if there's a mention of yeah, uh, Keith McJagger. <laughs> <laughs> but I also, in, um, in 1997, I sat next to the Doctor Who actor Tom Baker right, at a Waterstones managers' conference. And it was to tie in with the publication of his memoir, Who on Earth is Tom Baker? <laughs> and now Tom Baker, my absolute childhood hero, as Doctor Who, and and you know, I, there are many many good Tom Baker stories, but I, so I, and one of, of which is some of Tom, yeah, Tom, <laughs> Tom very much then, and presumably still does like to like to drink, and so I sat next to Tom uh, throughout the dinner. I we ate and we drank, and it was a you know, it was a great highlight of my <laughs> life, let alone career. Yeah. And towards the end of the meal, um, Tom Baker turned to me and he said. Uh, you're a very good-looking boy. <laughs> I said, uh, Thank thanks very, very much, much Tom. <laughs> yes, you're a very good-looking boy. And then he looked at me and he said, but what will you do when your looks fade? <laughs> <laughs> and um, I should have said, you know, appear regularly in a non-visual medium. <laughs> um, as well as chatting about books, writing, writers, and occasionally when we've finished, we retire to the pub and chat about other stuff. As this is a kind of summer special, we'll leave you with a cautionary tale of why you should always wear footwear when swimming in the southern seas. We hope you enjoy the show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a more regular edition. Goodbye. So this is, yeah, this right up there with bad holiday stories. Bad holidays I've lived through. It was actually a wonderful place to be. I was, I was on the island of Rarotonga in the Cook Islands with my family. And... Um, I was finishing, as I, t- traditionally I was, was doing on, on, on holidays, was finishing a book, which was the first draft of the, uh, the second book of General Ignorance, the QI book. So I'd been mm-hmm. spent, I spent basically all week researching. Amazingly, there was quite good internet out there, so researching stuff and writing up these ridiculous questions that you think you know the answers to but don't. Yeah. Uh, I, the last day, I ha- I'd, got it, I'd sent it off... Um, and I was able to tell the boys that finally I was going to be able to go out snorkeling with them. And having been you know, kind of absolutely on top of them all week long, telling them to wear reef shoes, I thought I'd go and have a snorkel. I went and had a snorkel. We had a great time. I had a sort of morning ritual. I always used to like to go and find a blue starfish. Um, that's why there's a blue starfish on my phone. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Incredibly beautiful <laughs> things. And sort of weird blue things are odd in nature. Yeah. Found a blue starfish and then 
just made, landed gently on the sea floor, felt a little prick, and then uh, was just sort of swam back, was casually, and that the, the prick got worse and worse. And by the time I'd actually got back, and it was actually really quite sore. Um, and I, you know, my brother noticed that he said, "You're limping." Why? Well, I said, oh, "I don't know. I stood, I stood on something." And he said, "Well, are you sure you didn't stand on uh, something really dangerous?" I said, oh, "What's the chances of that? I've only been in the water <laughs> yeah. for twenty minutes." Anyway. Uh, to cut a long story short, about half an hour later, I was in severe agony and starting yeah. to uh, start, really starting to sweat and feeling like I was about to pass out. So, we drove to the hospital. Uh, there's one hospital in the uh, in the main drag of, of Rarotonga, and got there. And by this stage, I was I was really starting to panic because it, it occurred to me that I probably had stood on something, and the, the thing that you all dread to stand on is the stonefish, the legendary stonefish. Stone. Yeah. So I go, I'm being very English, I go up to the counter and say, I appear to have stood on something in the reef. And the woman would have said it was very relaxed. She said, oh, fine, sit down, don't be worried, you'll be fine. Um, and, my, and Rachel's saying, I don't think he's going to be fine, he doesn't look fine to me. <laughs> and she said, well, she, she said it, he stood on a stonefish. What, what, kind, of pain, what kind of pain? The pain that? is a very, very intense pain in the, in the puncture wound that right. you can feel. But it just, it gets worse and worse and worse. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's incredibly sharp. And, I mean, you do start to... I mean, I was starting to really find it difficult to remain conscious. Yeah. Past, partly shock, I, su- I suspect. So not nice. None of this was good. <laughs> okay. Anyway, the, 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 she says, I'll, I'll go... And, I'll, I'll, go <laughs> I'll go and see if I can find the, yeah. the doctor. Rachel said, the doctor? Isn't this a hospital? Anyway, I was by this stage. The only thing I could do, I was sort of hopping around, trying to, you know, kind of... And I saw a guy in scrubs, and he said, oh, no, it's all right, the doctor will be through. So I saw the doctor, the doctor looked at my foot, he listened to the story, and he said, ah, he said, yeah, he said, I've got some good news and some bad news. I said, well, what's the good news? He said, you're not going to die, it's only one spine. He said, we had a kid last year, you know, three spines, had to chop his foot off. Uh, I said, okay, uh, that's good. What? I said, what's the bad news? Ah, uh, he said, you see, you know what to do with a stonefish, you've got to hot water on it, get hot water on it, kills the toxin, but... He said, this, you must, I said, yeah, it was about an hour ago. He said, yeah, I'm going to have to uh, inject it with an anti-necrotic. And oh. I said, and I said, you know what that is? I said, well, I, I, <laughs> I know what anti means and I know what necros means. <laughs> he said, yeah, you see, the toxin kills the skin, so I have to stop that. So I said, fine. I said, well, where do you have to inject it? In the puncture wound. So, oh. so I'm on the thing with the, the guy. I mean, my brother had to hold me down and it was, it was like a horse syringe, you know, horse oh. tranquilizer. It was a massive bloody thing. Uh, incredibly painful. And then he said, you're fine, I'll give you some conine, go and have a beer, enjoy your last night on the island. So I did, I sort of sat there with my foot in a bucket, kind of in a, in a lovely opiate haze, <laughs> drinking beer. Uh, unfortunately, the, the, the next day on the plane on the way back, I noticed that my leg had started to swell. And by the time we arrived in Queenstown in New Zealand, where we were supposed to be going skiing, I mean, I was, it was like massive, my leg had... And uh, we, I got off the plane. I hadn't seen my daughter for two years. And the first thing we said is, we've got to go to the doctor. So oh. <laughs> what's wrong with Dad? Uh, he stood <laughs> on a stonefish and it's gone wrong. <laughs> so anyway, it turned out that I had a, a, a the, the, the New Zealand, very brusque New Zealand doctor said, oh, yeah, stonefish. She said, we don't get many tropical fish injuries up here in the mountains. It's, <laughs> normally, people, it's normally people breaking their legs skiing. She said, yeah, but uh, she said, that's, that's uh, cellulitis. I said, uh, uh, that's what? Well, she said, what, what did you do after the, the, the doctor had died? And I said, put my bucket of water. Bucket of water? A bucket of water, I mean, what, full of germs. You've got your, the wounds infected. Mm. And she, then she got a biro and she drew a line around my thigh. <laughs> 
And I said, well, what, are you, what are you doing that for? She said, well, that's where the infection's got to. And I said, well, what happens? She said, well, if it gets to your heart, you die. Oh. I said, is it likely to? Well, that's I'm about to give you a, a, a bloody large dose of antibiotics to stop it. So another bloody great syringe comes oh. <laughs> pumps that in. And then she said, right, now you're not allowed to drink, you're not allowed to... And I said, I said what, what antibiotic was that? I'd just written a question for QI about, you know, <laughs> can you drink and have antibiotics? It turns out you can drink with almost all. There's two antibiotics of the hundred that are available that, that react badly with alcohol. So I, t- I, I vouchsafed this information. Ah, she said, smart ass. Right. Said, okay, yes, you can. I said, well, look, I've come here to drink wine with my best friend. I haven't seen him for 10 years. It's Central Otago Pinot Noirs. I want to drink them. She said, all right. She said, you can have a drink as long as you keep your foot above your heart. And if you can find a bar in Queenstown that will serve you, good luck to you. Yeah. Anyway, cut to about an hour later, and there I was with my foot on a bar. <laughs> and I managed to arrange a stool with a large glass of peanut. Everybody who came into the bar was saying, Stonefish! Let's be doing a stonefish! Anyway, the coda to the story is, um, on the way back, we stopped in Hong Kong, and I'd, uh, by this stage I'd researched stonefish to death, and I discovered that there were Hong Kongs that specialised in stonefish at restaurants in Hong Kong that specialised in stonefish. So we found one, and I got to choose my stonefish, that little bastard at the back, <laughs> and they served it th- stonefish three-way, which was brilliant. The, mm. bo- the whole We managed to consume everything, the bones and everything. It was really satisfying. Um, but, yeah, I mean, just wear roof shoes if you find yourself <laughs> in tropical soup. <laughs> If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash Backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.